Hi everyone, the History of Sacadvillo, Georgia will return on January 14th with a brand new episode opening up Season 3 and should be pretty consistently releasing every two weeks after that until the end of Season 3. I have been working hard on reading the plethora of sources on the Lasik Wars, so I'm getting pretty excited to talk about the Laz and the Bazgoy and continue further on into the formation of the Georgian Kingdom. In further news, I have been able to finally schedule a research trip to Georgia in May 2024 for about 15 days to allow me to see many of the historical sites that I have covered or will cover on the show, as well as find many opportunities to visit the museums and learn more about different artifacts and important people to the country of Georgia. This is where I'm asking you for your help. I'm currently saving up for this trip to ensure that I can visit as much as possible with the time that I have and come away with several research opportunities in libraries, museums, and historical sites, as well as finding books that I can't really find in the US. However, I need some support to ensure that I can get to these sites, some of which are hidden deep in the mountains and need a guide to get to, as well as any necessary books and travel costs. To thank you for your support as well, I will write a short bonus episode at every $100 as thanks for your donations, and these episodes will be about the sites that I visit, and especially the ones that will not make it to the main podcast narrative. And apart from that, I will also make an audio journal that I'll upload day by day to look into the journey and the things that I am doing while abroad. These audio journals will not be edited heavily, so you're just going to hear me talking into a microphone because... Of course, I will be abroad, so it'll be a bit harder to sit and edit. Um, I really thank you for any support you can give and making a dream come true for me. I look forward to recounting my experiences to you while I'm in Georgia and teaching you more about the wonderful nation of Georgia. If you would like to donate, you can donate on tinyurl.com slash S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O-T-R-I-P, so Sacred Velo Trip. Or you can follow the link in the episode description. Once again, I would really thank you for anything that you can do to help support this thing. We currently are at, as of December 22, are at one bonus episode for everyone. So feel free to help me out with anything. Thank you. And welcome to the history of Sacarvelo, Georgia. First off, thank you for subscribing and supporting the show. You're listening to Bonus 3, Peter the Iberian. Peter the Iberian is a bit of a fun episode because he is so different from anyone we have covered so far. He was a monk living in the Holy Land and a monophysite. To keep this brief, a monophysite is someone who believes that Jesus Christ only had one will, not two wills. In other words, while many Christians believe Jesus was both human and divine, the monophysites believe this was impossible and that his nature was completely divine. There are several other key differences in this, but that explanation is the easiest one because it's in a name, mono, one. We'll be focusing on Peter's life because there are other podcasts that take a much closer look at the events surrounding the Council of Chalcedon and its main players, such as the history of Byzantium. What we know of Peter the Iberian comes from the writings of his follower, John Rufus, 
who wrote down what he knew in the Vita Petri Iberi because he thought that God wanted to establish Peter as the leader of the anti-Chalcedonian or Monophysite cause. From this point forward, I will refer to anti-Chalcedonian as AC because it is a mouthful to say repeatedly. The story of Peter the Iberian's birth comes to us in a classic fashion. One day, his father Bosmarios was returning from a countryside retreat when a mysterious man approached him in the street. This man grabbed onto the Kartveli princeling and told him that he would have a son that would become a shining example to everyone that he knew. Bosmarios was stunned and left speechless. He blinked, and the man vanished into thin air. A few months later, his wife, Bakur Duktia, gave birth to Nabarnugios, later called Peter, around 409 AD. And his maternal grandfather is Bakur the Iberian, whom we covered in our previous bonus episode. We do have details about the rest of Peter's family, but they don't show up again, so it's not worth mentioning. Now, the ones that are interesting to mention is the people that John Rufus does include in Peter's family, such as a half-sister named Bosmirosparia and a great-uncle named Arsilios. This sister was born from a concubine of his father. Bosmarios asked Peter to treat Bosmirosparia as a true sister. You'd think that a half-sister would be treated as a sister regardless, but that wasn't how things were usually done according to custom. Arcelios, on the other hand, was an extremely chaste man and a dedicated virgin, who lived with complete sanctity. I find it interesting that Rufus doesn't try hiding things about Peter's family, such as his half-sister's parentage and the holiness of his uncle. One detail is pretty unsavory, but the other would lend credence to Peter's image as a holy man. The inclusion of both makes me think that Rufus's account is more accurate, but we need to remember that he was Peter's follower and he is a religious chronicler for the AC cause, so he was incentivized to make Peter seem better. After his birth, Peter was placed under the care of a woman named Zuzo and her husband Huranios. Their daughter, Ota, became Peter's wet nurse and he stayed with them well into his childhood. They made such a positive impression on the young boy that upon becoming a monk, he included his foster family in the liturgical commemoration for his actual family, showcasing the personal affection and gratitude that he had for the people who had a part in actually raising him. Now, we don't know much about the rest of his childhood, apart from who he stayed with. But we do know that once he became a teenager, he was sent to Constantinople as a hostage of Emperor Theodosius II, the guy whom the Theodosian walls are named after. You see, the Byzantine Emperor wanted the allegiance of the Kartveli in their constant conflict against the Sassanid Empire. The Kartveli, due to their proximity to both the Persians and Romans, decided that they valued Roman support in case of a war. Their reasoning? Well, both nations were united in their worship of Christ, and this made allying with the Romans all the more easier. So, off to Constantinople Peter went. While there, he was personally raised by the emperor and his wife Eudoxia. Theodosia's sister, Pocheria, was probably influenced Peter's upbringing and education, but Rufus may have omitted that fact since she was a supporter of the Counts of Chalcedon. Pokeria's admission is also odd because she was the one really running the empire and making all the political and administrative decisions. The emperor, Theodosius, 
was extremely weak-willed and pliable and just wanted to do his own thing, so this allowed for Pucheria to take the reins of rulership. To ensure that she wasn't forcibly married off to wrest power away from her, she undertook a vow of perpetual chastity and under her purview, the palace turned into a quasi-monastery. As a member of the Byzantine royal family, despite his hostage status, Peter more than likely had access to a good, classical education supported by the opening of multiple universities in the area. Peter was so beloved by the emperor that he indicated he regarded him as a son multiple times. It's also interesting to note that Peter was possibly trilingual and would have known Georgian, Persian, and Greek. Knowing Georgian is understandable, and he may have learned Persian and Greek while either in Constantinople or during his childhood in Kartli, as those would have been part of the spoken court languages in the kingdom. Persian is obviously necessary due to their proximity to the Sassanids. Theodosius ensured that Peter wasn't just studying, though. He placed him in charge of the royal stable. This is probably because the Kartveli have a sort of reputation for being skilled on horseback and with caring for horses. It's easy to imagine Peter spending his youth riding horses and playing polo with great skill when he was less of a contemplative ascetic. Remember how I mentioned that the palace was essentially a monastery under Pocheria? Well, it's easy to see how Peter would have been devoted to prayer and religious asceticism. During his time in the palace, he befriended a man named Mithridatos, who became his religious guide and companion. This Mithridatos is said to be from Lazica, which, as we know, is right next to Kartli, so it makes sense they would bond over their shared or similar cultures. Mithridatos was a catalyst for Peter's religious learning and, under his guidance, progressed rapidly in his spirituality. Peter allegedly became a miracle worker with the ability to receive visions and predict future events. Many in the palace didn't see Peter's adherence to his faith as a good thing, though. He received multiple complaints from the palace staff that came with him that he wasn't treating them fairly, and thus they had no chance to be promoted in the court or use his influence. He merely ignored these complaints as he had more spiritual matters to attend to. He also apparently turned his bedroom into a shrine, using it to store and venerate the relics of Persian martyrs that he brought from Kartli, as they wouldn't have been venerated otherwise. It was at this moment that several people arrived at the palace who forever changed his life and put him on the track to asceticism. The first person he met was an Antiochian deacon named Basil, who filled him with desire for the monastic life through example. Unfortunately, as the son of a Kartveli royal, he had to remain in place. The emperor also invited a woman named Melania the Younger to the palace. Melania was a famous Roman noblewoman who gave up all the wealth she had to become an ascetic on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. After Peter made her acquaintance, her personality and ascetic conduct impressed him so much that he wanted to imitate her example as well. Here, in front of him, he had another noble who gave up everything to become closer to Christ. It was through Melania's influence that Peter found the will and desire to live the ascetic life in the Holy Land. Rufus goes on to state that when Melania met Peter, she took an immediate liking to the young lad because she could see the grace of God resting within him. To me, this sounds like a bit of AC propaganda by Rufus, 
so he could gain some credence for his movement among the ascetic audience he was addressing. Approaching the emperor, Peter expressed his desire to take to the cloth and make his new home in the Holy Land. Theodosius, probably under the influence of Bulgaria, told the young men no, as he was quite the valuable hostage. Peter was taken aback and retreated to his confidant, Mithridates. Together, they came up with a plan to make their escape from the imperial palace. Working with Mithridates, he prayed to the Persian martyrs whom he venerated in his room to aid in their escape. The martyrs erupted from their shrine in a pillar of fire, lighting the way for Peter and Mithridates. They sang a hymn as they lit the way for the pair, proclaiming, Seek Christ and behold the light from the light. Peter would never forget the melody he heard on this night. The martyrs led them through rows and rows of guards protecting the palace undetected and made their way out of the boundaries of Constantinople, not unlike the biblical tale of the liberation of Peter the Apostle from prison by an angel. So it's possible that the creative liberties the author took here were meant to invoke another well-known tale such as that. This escape must have happened not too long after Melania had left the imperial capital. Peter was only 20 years old. In his hands, Peter held the relics of the martyrs in a golden box, with a copy of the Gospel of St. John that contained on its cover a fragment of the true cross. He received this fragment earlier from clerics that gifted it to the emperor. On their way to Jerusalem, Peter and Mithridates were mistaken as fugitive slaves and arrested on a few occasions. Eventually, they accomplished their mission and arrived at their destination, Jerusalem. At the gates to the city, the pair were left in amazement. Here was the goal they had embarked on upon weeks ago, the Holy Land, Jerusalem. In their awe, they cried out the verse of Isaiah 33:20, Look upon Zion, the city of our salvation. Thine eyes will see Jerusalem. They fell down to their knees and prostrated themselves to the city, giving it their love and respect. They didn't dare walk in and instead crawled into the city on their knees until they arrived at the church of the Anastasis. Once Peter and Mithridates entered the church, they sang praises as if they were with Jesus in heaven. In the church, Peter and Mithridates met with Gerontius, the superior of Melania the Younger in their monasteries on the Mount of Olives. In a special ceremony, Gerontius listened as the pair took their monastic vows, and he renamed the young Nabarnugios and Mithridates to Peter and John. Once again, Peter was only 20, and this is when we can officially say he became Peter. John, on the other hand, would become known as John the Eunuch. Peter's theological education continued under Gerontius, who ultimately influenced the young man's personal, religious, and ideological development the most. Gerontius would later become known for his persistence in the defense of anti-Chalcedonian doctrine in the future. Now that he was a monk, Peter wanted to ensure he could contribute to Jerusalem as much as possible. He wanted to make this his home, after all, and would begin by attempting to rebuild the landscape of the city. Working along with John, he built a monastery they called the Tower of David on Mount Zion. This is now known as the Armenian Quarter in the old city of Jerusalem. Through time, this monastery was nicknamed the Monastery of the Iberians, 
but should not be confused with the monastery of the Holy Cross. With Peter and John's construction of the Tower of David, we can now mark the beginning of the Georgian influence in the Holy Land, as Peter is widely regarded to be the first Georgian monk in Jerusalem and the founder of the Georgian monastic establishments there. The establishment of these monasteries led Peter and John to help the city in other ways. They were seeing the boom that Jerusalem was experiencing with all the new people coming to visit, and within their monastery, they hosted pilgrims for free. The generosity that Zuzo and her family had shown the young Peter may have been a major influencing factor in Peter's desire to help and support foreign pilgrims. His charitable activities also showcase how many monastic communities and individual ascetics went out of their way to aid those visiting the Hodeland, often by establishing free hostels for pilgrims and orphanages. However, all of this was much to the chagrin of Peter's spiritual advisor, Zeno. Even though Peter and John were doing good work, Zeno was of the mind that this success was causing them to neglect what he considered to be the proper monastic way of life, and recalled them back to their monastic vocation. The pair left the Tower of David and went to another monastery. Peter's success had attracted the attention of the Patriarch of Jerusalem, Juvenal. You may remember Juvenal from our first Patreon episode, where he made a brief appearance over a hundred years earlier as the uncle of Saint Nino. Juvenal had heard of the popularity of this monk and wanted to see him become a priest. While this may have sounded great to Juvenal, Peter was horrified. He did not want to become a priest and evaded all of Juvenal's attempts to make him one. You'd think that this was a bad thing. Peter didn't want to become a priest, so why was he forced to? Well, it's time for me to mention that the anti-Chalcedonians considered Juvenal a traitor to their cause and saw Peter's attempts at escaping from being made a priest by such a man a very good thing. And now the fun begins for Peter. Comfortable in his new lifestyle as a monk, Peter heard of a visit by the Empress Eudoxia to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a big city, of course, and with Peter in a monastery, he of course wouldn't need to see his adoptive mother. Nevertheless, she wanted to see him since she had taken care of him in his youth back at Constantinople. Peter was mortified and evaded all attempts of her to visit him in the monastery, since he feared that seeing a woman would violate the monastic rules. I leave it to you to speculate on why he believed seeing his own mom would have made him unchaste. Zeno, having seen how often Peter avoided the empress, sent him off to the town of Mayuma near the port city of Gaza and encouraged him to join the monastic community there. This was much to Juvenal's liking, as he had placed his cousin there as the Bishop of Mayuma not too long ago. Once Peter arrived into the monastery, the bishop cornered the poor lad and ordained him as a priest. Juvenal had now gotten what he wanted. Peter was getting comfortable in his new monastery, and despite being ordained, he had successfully evaded the empress, and was getting back into the monastic way of life. However, there were other forces at play in the outside world that Peter honestly didn't care too much for. The Council of Chalcedon was occurring, and the main discussion was, does Jesus Christ have one will or two? The arguments raged amongst the clergymen, and the Patriarch of Jerusalem, Juvenal, had reassured the people in his patriarchate 
that he fully agreed with them when he said that Jesus Christ had only one will. The arguments continued and no one came to an agreement. However, a monk named Theodosius overheard Juvenal engaging in a little double talk. He knew Juvenal was staunchly for Christ having one will, but he could have sworn he just heard him say Christ indeed had two wills. Theodosius, the monk, not the emperor, fled back to the Holy Land. Juvenal was much slower and didn't return in time to quell the anti-Chalcedonian protesters' outrage that he had turned away from them. Riots broke out and Peter found himself at the forefront of the debate. As he was an influential participant of the anti-Chalcedonian cause, mostly because of his connections with the Roman Emperor Theodosius. But, as always, Peter was hesitant to join the fray. The monks were outraged at Juvenal's treason at Chalcedon, but Peter just didn't want to leave his monastic cell and get involved in the world. He had to care for his own soul and show his devotion to Christ. Why would he want to be involved in any arguments that concerned the patriarch and the church? Things changed when Juvenal approached him with the members of the imperial court. Peter joined the meeting with Juvenal, the courtiers, and the incense monks, hoping to just listen to what he had to say. With him was a decurion, which is a Roman cavalry officer from Constantinople. Theodosius the monk, who had told the men about what had occurred, spoke first and laid into Juvenal for his transgressions. I will just read the quote for you all. When he laid out Juvenal's obvious hypocrisy and apostasy, Juvenal was furious and commanded a certain decurion, one of those who were following him, to deal secretly with Theodosius as a revolutionary and as one who resisted the emperor's will. As that one, an example, the decurion, was about to do so, the blessed Peter, still being a monk and not yet having the dignity of the office of bishop, was inflamed with zeal. He knew that one, however, from his time at the court. He threw his stole around his neck and said to him with the strength of a prophecy, You there! Do you dare to act as a mediator concerning the faith and speak about all of it? Did you not do these things and other things in that night? I am the least of all the saints who are here, but if you seek to do so, I will speak immediately and fire will come down from heaven and will destroy you and those who belong to you. When that one, an example the Decurion, was in fear and was shaking, knowing who he, an example, Peter the Iberian was, he fell down at his feet, asking him in front of everyone, Forgive me, Lord Dambarnugi, I did not know that your holiness is here. And thus he left the blessed Theodosius go, no longer daring to speak again or do anything against the saints. He took Juvenal and returned to Caesarea. Of course, Juvenal was going to make use of his imperial protection to force these AC monks into line, especially the monk Theodosius. But he didn't count on Peter using his experience within the imperial court, status within the imperial family, and knowledge of the Decurion's life to bring the Decurion into submission. The Decurion also addressed Peter as both Lord Nabarnugi and as Your Holiness, respecting Peter's imperial connection and his religious authority. To the AC movement, this moment is when they saw Peter's authority as crucial for any success that they would have within Palestine. The rioters were only empowered after Peter's actions, and the anti-Chalcedonian movement went into full swing. Juvenal and his companions lost their power and, they feared, their lives as well if they didn't act quickly. Juvenal returned to Constantinople to ask the emperor for his support against the AC monks. 
Peter and the monks installed Theodosius as Bishop of Jerusalem in juvenile stead. Since Theodosius had delivered the news, who better to place in charge? However, the church still considered Juvenal as the Bishop of Jerusalem, planting the seeds for a schism. The Chalcedonian and anti-Chalcedonian movements were not reconciling, and with the placements of AC leaders into vacated spots, the schism would only grow. Peter, on the other hand, was now dealing with an issue of his own. Bishop Paul fled Mayuma, and his flock begged him to become the replacement and use his influence as a noble and adopted member of the imperial family for their cause. Peter reacted in the usual way. He locked himself in his room whenever people approached him on the subject. The people did not like this reaction and came upon his house like a horde of robbers. Obviously, Peter was not a fan of public ecclesiastical offices, which we saw in his efforts to avoid ordination. After he was ordained, he skipped out on liturgical services for seven whole years and didn't even preside over the divine liturgy until he was forced to be bishop once more. Peter constantly argued that he was unworthy of the honor of being Bishop of Mayuma. The people were gladdened by this because to them, it was common for any official to not want the position as part of their acceptance since it showed their humility. Peter, on the other hand, was absolutely serious and found his resistance unsuccessful. He did decide to rebel as much as he could though, and became hesitant about celebrating the Eucharist and pondered if his priest should perform it for him. He was not quiet enough about it and word got around that he was refusing to perform the Eucharist, causing another crowd to come around the church and they threatened to burn the church with him in it if he did not celebrate the liturgy. Talk about fans. While the people loved Peter, his time as bishop came to an end after only six months. The AC rebellion was crushed as Juvenal returned with the protection and aid of the Comus Domesticarum Dorotheus with the imperial army in tow. He was reinstated as the bishop of Jerusalem. The AC movement naturally recalls this event as a bloody massacre where Juvenal ordered the Romans and Samaritans to kill the poor, pious monks who resisted him. But victory was not total for Juvenal. Many of the anti-Chalcedonian monks, such as Theodosius, escaped to Egypt to get away from the conflict. At this point, Emperor Marcion took the initiative to banish the remaining AC bishops. Peter remained where he was, since Empress Pulcheria exempted him from his exile. You'd think that Peter would be upset about this, but he really wasn't. He was no longer bishop and accepted the Empress's merciful treatment and, his, and enjoyed his time living as he used to. But while praying, a vision came to him and he saw Christ admonish and challenge him for not being part of the Exodus. He decided that it was time to join his AC brethren in Egypt. At this time, Egypt had become the main refuge for the anti-Chalcedonian dissidents, mostly because the Patriarchate of Alexandria was on the AC side and they helped keep up support for the movement. Peter lived in the countryside for almost 20 years, staying mostly in the areas around Alexandria and then moved to Oxyrinchus or modern-day Albanasa. While in Egypt, Peter became even more involved with the AC movement, where he was tasked with helping his group against the subtly refined and hardly detectable Chalcedonian propaganda that was coming in from the rest of the empire. While at church, 
Peter heard the proclamation of a doctrinal text by Proterius, the Chalcedonian Patriarch of Alexandria. He characterized the speech as Proterius mixing poison with honey. This is interesting because it's also written that Monk Theodosius had a vision of Peter before he died. Supposedly, Peter was standing at his side, pointing in every single spot where the writings of Proterius were heretical and misleading for the AC cause. This also seems like an insert from Rufus to add more credence to Peter's authority. Peter did not feel very prepared for taking on bigger tasks though, despite the pressure he was getting from his brethren, but they had had enough of his hesitancy and placed him on top of the base of a pillar next to the statue of the emperor. Essentially, Peter was now a stylite. Riots commenced in Alexandria, forcing Peter to escape Oxyrinchus in the Thebaid, where he emerged as an active leader for the AC movement and engaged in public and semi-underground movements for his cause. This experience in the desert with all of these ascetics only strengthened what confidence Peter needed to continue on and intensify his struggles for the AC church. But things were not going well for the anti-Chalcedonian movement. The AC Patriarch of Alexandria, Dioscorus, died in exile in Gangra, and Peter was the favored successor. So Peter hid from view once more. Those days were not without good news. Emperor Marcion had died, and the anti-Chalcedonian monks and laymen of Alexandria let out a collective sigh of relief. Marcion was a staunch Chalcedonian who persecuted the AC clergy viciously. The AC church entered a church named Caesarion and brought with them their preferred candidate for the Patriarch of Alexandria, Peter the... I'm kidding. His name was Timothy Aylerus, or Tim the Weasel. It was thanks to Peter's assistance that Tim the Weasel's ordination as Patriarch was possible. Soon after, Peter received a message from his old bishopric in Mayuma asking him to return to them. Peter was hesitant, as per usual, since he needed God's explicit assurance that the anti-Chalcedonian movement had built up enough strength in Egypt. Tim the Weasel assured Peter that he had, and sent him off to the Holy Land. Peter did not return to Mayuma, since the religious climate was still not favorable to the adherents of the anti-Chalcedonian movement, but instead went to Ashkelon and stayed in the town of Pelea. He concentrated on strengthening the AC cause, made much easier thanks to his personal charisma, which convinced many to renounce the secular world and choose the path of monasticism. He was building a new nucleus of anti-Chalcedonians in the area, and his guidance allowed the movement to flourish, especially that of AC asceticism. Despite Peter's successes in Ashkelon, the anti-Chalcedonian cause was itself losing momentum. Patriarch Materius of Jerusalem wanted to reconcile with the anti-Chalcedonians. He worked hard to compromise with them, and after some concessions, was able to bring them into the fold. The remaining group around Peter the Iberian remained the largest resisting AC movement. Peter now stood alone. He was the last hierarch of AC in the Holy Land, as the rest had been forced to withdraw due to outside pressure. It's at this point that we see John Rufus begin to follow Peter around. Rufus states that whenever Peter would travel around Palestine and Arabia, people would rush to him for his blessing. He remained a powerful and charismatic speaker and continued to work miracles for everyone. His charisma is probably why the anti-Chalcedonian movement around him was able to keep going. The new emperor, Zeno, invited Peter back to Constantinople to get him to agree to the Henoticon. Peter, now wiser in his old age, 
decided to run away from the Emperor's grip. He really likes running away, doesn't he? While fleeing, he went through different regions of Palestine, Arabia, and Phoenicia, where he continued his holy work, behind which he also masked his flight from oppression and persecution. Peter eventually came to a place outside Jamnia, and he felt tired. He laid down and called his disciples around him for one of his lessons. He told them to follow the three basic guiding principles for a Christian man, to keep the Orthodox faith, to speak the truth, and to keep one's body pure from fornication and lasciviousness. He then encouraged them to repeatedly repent for their sins. He blessed them and closed his eyes one last time. He died in 491 at the age of at least 70. He was buried in his monastery near Gaza. Now, usually you'd think we'd recognize him as a saint at this point in the Orthodox Church, but he's not. The Georgian Church doesn't recognize him either, nor do they agree he ever deviated from Chalcedonian beliefs, but he is a saint in the Syriac Church, which has Monophysite leanings. You can also find him painted in the frescoes of the Monastery of the Holy Cross in Jerusalem. Thank you all once again for subscribing and listening. And if you want to learn about more Georgians or have a book or movie review, let me know and we'll make something happen. Madlaba da Nakhbamdis, and thank you for listening to The History of Sacramento, Georgia. See you next time.